HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program has been brought to you by Fairway Market, like no other market, a New York City institution that sells the best local, national, and international artisan foods for prices that can't be beat. For more information, visit fairwaymarket.com. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more. Good morning. You're listening to In the Drink on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. My name is Joe Campanelli. I'm your host for In the Drink and the beverage director for a couple of restaurants down in New York City, Delanima, Lartuzzi, La Picho, and the Little Wine Bar, Anfora. Um, very excited today. I have a world-famous bartender, one of the, one of the top. I mean, it's if you're, if you're a serious bartender anywhere in the world, it's hard not to know the name Simon Ford. Um, he is, uh, for years, he's been traveling the glo- globe, training mixologists and helping to popularize cocktails. Uh, started at a, a little wine bar in London, started a little retail sh- shop in London, and uh, now is an internationally famous uh, bartender. He was also instrumental in the relaunch of Plymouth Gin, and for his efforts, he was named the best international brand ambassador in 2007 and best U.S. brand ambassador in the 2009 tales of the cocktail something that i've been meaning to go to all these years uh and i will get there one day um also he's a leading voice of the cocktail world and regular regularly conducts educational sessions judges bartending competitions and speaks on seminar panels at food and spirits conferences and recently uh simon founded the 86 company which is based in the united states and offers a portfolio of premium spirits and we're going to get to taste a few of those in a little bit. Uh, welcome, Simon Ford. It's good to have you here. No, it's good to be here. Thank you. It sounds like you lead a pretty uh, luxurious life, flying around the world, drinking <laughs> cocktails. Who would have ever thought that um, by being a bartender or being in wine that you would end up being flown to places like Sydney or Hong Kong to go and teach people how to stir a martini? It's, it's absurd, but it's actually brilliant as well. And when did you realize that you wanted a, a life in the in the restaurant industry or or behind the bar? And then uh, and then how did you go from there to to the next step? It's so interesting because it's all I've ever known. Is I, I started doing twenty hours a week in a wine shop when I was studying at university, and um, 
in those 20 hours, I didn't even like red wine. And the guy went, you don't like red wine? Well, you better take this bottle home with you and tell me what you think of it tomorrow. And of course, it was my first bottle of red wine. And I was hooked then and there. I wrote my notes on it. It was actually a Cahors. And I remember it to this day, you know, the black wines of France. And I just got hooked on wines and then I moved on to spirits I've always said that uh, once I'm uh, an alcoholic and uh, I will move on to uh, working in a smoothie shop but for now I'm controlling it and drinking uh, across the world and it's a lot of fun <laughs> that's great I mean I got my start also in a in a retail wine shop the uh, the Italian wine merchants nice uh, and it was kind of a premium shop and so everything everything there was a very high quality so I didn't realize what the whole scope of of wines was it's unbelievable because you've got to think about the entire world and drinking culture across every single continent changes from country to country. The wines they drink, the spirits they drink. I mean, it's so exciting and it's so what everyday life is about is about stopping and having a drink, you know, after a hard day's work or it might be just stopping and sharing a glass of wine with really good friends or it's dinner in Italy or France. It's just amazing. But culture is being based around drink. And I think that man has been trying to make uh alcohol since the dawn of time i think it's like 5000 bc in mesopotamia and he's there trying to distill and uh, and we've continued until now so tell tell me some about some of the more interesting or unique drinking cultures you've come across um well <laughs> there's the uh when you're in thailand and then there's the snake inside the uh bottle that's always a, an interesting one and apparently that's to give a man virility um and it's the scariest looking thing in the planet to try and eat a snake that's been sitting in brandy for uh, 10 years Wait, i'm sorry and then you have to eat the snake and then you have to eat the snake oh, and i guess that's just a more manly version of eating the worm in the mezcal right <laughs> But that's but even then the worm in the mezcal is pretty is pretty interesting. I'm glad that we got rid of that, and now that mezcal has sort of become this amazing spirit that everybody really appreciates now. You know, with Del Maguey and all of these different companies coming out, mezcal is like the new cool thing to drink. And when I was at college, it was the thing that you ate the worm, and it was supposed to be hallucinogenic. But of course, now it's something you sip and savor, and it's 150 bucks a bottle. Yeah, who would have thought Mezcal would be 150 bucks a bottle? <laughs> so, so that's something that uh, a lot of people are getting excited about. Uh, do you have any thoughts on what m- might be the next, the next Mezcal? That's a really, it is a really good question. And Pisco has obviously been mm. sort of fighting for that place for a little while. But I really, truly think that some fantastic Piscos have been launched in the last year, two years. And that could be the next, next go-to spirit after Mezcal. Right, yeah, so for those of you at home, Pisco's uh, great base spirit yep. from South America. Yeah, kind of Chile uh, makes it, but obviously Peru more famous for the quality. But actually, there's one that just came from Chile uh, that was just launched, uh, I think, a few weeks ago. And uh, it's, I tried it, and it's delicious. So there's good spirits almost in every category, and it's just finding them. Okay, so if someone was going to bring home a bottle of premium Chilean uh, pisco and you're not going to make a, a pisco sour that you want to maybe sip on it or, or make some other unique cocktail what would you do with a premium unique pisco well uh, pisco is obviously his most famous cocktail is the pisco sour which is very much uh, mix it with the egg white and the sour mix get some bitters in there and shake it up and that's delicious and you can also make a pisco punch which is the classic drink that came out of san francisco it's interesting to know that in san francisco in the early 1900s you know our you know the gold rush period the number one spirit was actually pisco it's crazy that's crazy so it actually has a um, quite a connective history with uh, american cocktail culture 
That's that's fantastic. So tell us a little bit about the company that you started, the the eighty six. It's it's been a really interesting journey. I mean, I've obviously been working in spirits, I would say, for fifteen years, and the journey of launching Plymouth Gym was probably one of my favorite things I've ever done in my life. That's actually what took me traveling to more of the countries than anywhere else, and teaching people the virtues of gin was a lot of fun because. I think in 2000, when I was starting to do that job, everybody wanted to drink nothing but vodka in the spirits world. Oh. It was the, those were dark days, right? <laughs> <laughs> and uh, and and so trying to teach people that that there was more to life than vodka was uh, was really interesting. And gin was actually considered the evil spirit at the time, I think, because it was the spirit that people had stolen from their mum's cabinet, liquor cabinet, and. Um, They'd stolen it from the liquor, liquor cabinet, got a really bad hangover. That flavor of juniper had left them feeling sick for the rest of their lives. So trying to convince people about the virtues of gin was definitely very, uh, very, very tough. But after 10 years of doing that, uh, Plymouth Gin and working for Pono Ricard on lots of really some of the great spirits brands of the world, Jameson's, that's been a lot of fun, uh, working on brands like Glenlivet. I really wanted to do my own spirits company, and it came from working with bartenders, because I felt that we always look at what the consumer wants, but never really what the bartender wants. And what the bartender wants is mixability. They want it to make a great cocktail. And now there's this, we're at the dawn of the professional bartender. Creating tools for them to work with was really the goal. So as an example, we made a rum. And the journey of the rum was probably my favorite because we ended up making it with one of the best rum distillers in the world. His name's Don Pancho. Uh, and he made a Vanna Club for like 35 years. He was the minister of Cuban rum. He's been making rum in Panama since, I think, the early 90s. Made some great rums like Zafra, and we went to him with our idea of a rum and got him on board and started working with him, and it was local sugar cane, and it was organic, and this beautiful old sugar mill from 1919. And the next thing we know, we're making rum with him, which in itself was really exciting for a bunch of bartenders and we're bringing those rums back to all of our friends in new york and los angeles and san francisco and we're getting them to taste it in daiquiris and they're saying hey it needs to be tweaked here a little bit or if you changed it a little bit there we need a little bit more alcohol and so we'd go back to the distiller with all of the findings from testing it in cocktails and make adjustments and so the whole journey was about how does it taste in a really good daiquiri and that's the sort of foundation of the principles of the company, the 86 company. Every spirit we've made, we've tested extensively in cocktails, given it to the professional bartenders to give us their input and then gone and made tweaks and changes so that we have really good mixing gin, rum, vodka and tequila, actually. Wow, that's fun. So you're, you're like, uh, I think I need to go back down to Jamaica to make some more <laughs> tweaks. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's, it's a bit like that. Actually, it's, the journey started even, you know, it, it's exciting because with the rum, we went to several countries to try and find someone who would actually make the rum we wanted. And so there's places like Trinidad that makes really fantastic rums, but they really weren't equipped to make the rum we wanted. So we ended up making ours in Panama mm. and Panama is a beautiful country. It's beautiful. Well, I know you brought a few spirits today. Um, I really want to try this rum. Do you have this with you? I do. Okay, fantastic. here we go. It's right. um. I'm look, you know, I'm looking at the bottle as well, and and just thinking as someone who spends a lot of time behind the bar, it looks as if it's you've ergonomically designed it for good pouring. There are a few. There are a few bottles that maybe they're beautiful bottles, but if you're going to put it in the well, or you're making cocktails with it. You're making a bunch of cocktails that they're just not convenient for pouring. This looks like something I want to hold. I want to pour. It's it's so interesting that you've you've spotted that, and that's a testament to you being a professional. I mean, I spent about two years on this bottle design. I think I surveyed 
50, 60 bartenders on what their favorite ones to pour from were. And it was always for a different reason. So I was, how do I incorporate all of that? And then I went to a water bottle designer because they work very well with ergonomics. And then I actually even worked with a physiotherapist that worked on bartender injuries. And he said, you need to create a bottle that can be poured in several different ways and it needs to be you know, weighted well. And so we'd started then based the design on a liter size, which is what bartenders usually use. And uh, ended up with this. And as you can see, it's tapered at the bottom. It's got a port, you know, like it's got measurements on the side. The first bottle I've ever seen with accurate measurements, which is great for a bartender because you've got inventory control. You've That is fantastic. I wish all bottles had this. I hope they do. I hope we inspire and influence everyone to put it in there. That's beautiful. You know, you can make simple syrups from the measurements, you know, or infuse. But let's pour some of this rum. Here we go. This this here is actually... um, what I would call a um, aged and filtered rum. So it's got very little color, despite the fact it's gone through about four years of aging. It's sort of two years in um, New American Oak Uncharred, and then about a year and a half in used American whiskey barrels after that. But then it gets charcoal filtered, and it gets cold filtered to remove the protein. And you end up with a light rum, and it's the sugar cane that's the star of this rum, and the wood is almost in the background. And that's sort of like those old Carta Blanca styles of the 1920s that made Mary Pickford's daiquiris and all those great classic cocktails. So the filtering removes um, not only the proteins, but the color as well? Yeah. It's quite interesting because it pushes the wood flavor to the background, which most rums, it's all about the wood. This particular rum is all about the sugar cane, and the wood is playing the supporting role. So then why would... why? Why age it for four years? Why not just age it for two years or one it, year? It, I know. It, what it, happens? <laughs> it, it, it seems sort of ridiculous. I, I, I definitely agree. The idea is you want it to be complex. If you only aged it for one year, you wouldn't pull enough complexities from the wood. So they're still there. They just happen to be it's sort of in the foreground. Wow. We even added an extra three points of ABV. So there's a tiny little bit of heat, but that's the kick that you sort of want in a cocktail. But when you try it, it's really, really dry. It's almost unique in rum because rum's often very sweet because of sugar cane. This is really, really dry. So as a bartender, you're adding the sweetness and you're adding the lime and it almost calls for you to put citrus and sugar in it. It's actually why I think it's my favorite of our spirits because of that sort of unique characteristic uh, as opposed to it being the best of our spirits. It's just the most unique. I, you know, I really like the the fact that it does have that three percent higher uh, ABV because in a cocktail, I think it should you should be able to taste the spirit that should be the star, and this is admittedly uh, a more elegant, subtle, nuanced kind of rum. It's not a knock you over the head with it, and I think having that little bit higher ABV will allow the the elegance of it to show without being covered up by some of your your mixers. It's true. It's not a Jamaican rum in that sense, is it? It's definitely that old. I think it's a little bit Cuban style. You can't get Havana Club in the USA, so it's sort of probably the next best thing. You know, anytime I have a bartender and we, we talk about rum, Havana Club on, always comes up on this show. Well, you know, you know what? Bartenders, uh, just by their general nature, want something they can't have. Mm-hmm. You know, if there's some Amaro bitters made in some small community in Italy, there's only seven bottles, bartenders will want it. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I definitely recommend anyone who goes to Italy, don't bring home a bottle of wine. Bring home a bottle of Amaro. Chances are you can probably get the wine in the States, but 
other than about 10 or 15 different Amaros. You know, Italy has hundreds, thousands of different Amari there. So try to find a, a unique Amaro and bring that home. Talk about an amazing drinking culture. The idea of having that pre-dinner drink like they do in Italy and then that after-dinner drink as well. And it's the bitters, some with sugar or bitters, really bitter, depending on how full you are. It's so great. That's why I think Amaro's is one of my favorite drinking cultures. Yeah, you're, you're, you're talking <laughs> directly to my heart here. Uh, yeah, the whole, the, the aperitif to open up your stomach, get you, get you salivating, get yeah. you hungry, uh, different drinks to go throughout. Uh, and, and again, it's, uh, you know, it's, as Richard Betts would say, they treat it more like a grocery. They treat it there like it's something that has its place on the table every bit as much as, as bread or, or water. It's just, it's part of it. It's what binds the meal together. And then, uh, uh, and that's that's wine, and then at the end that that stronger, yeah. bitter, you know, just said. You know what I like about it too? It kind of when I when I think about it, when I have my amaro, I don't want anything else. Sure, it puts the period at the end of the of the paragraph of the sentence of the story. That was that was your meal. It's now over. I'm not craving anything else. I'm good. I find it really weird that some amaros taste really bad when I'm not been eating. And if I've got a full stomach, they suddenly all of a sudden taste really, really good. And other Maros when I'm not full. You know, it's, it's really bizarre. I think that the different levels of bitterness have been designed almost to meet the purpose of your digestive system. And they taste better, no matter, you know, based on how much you need it. I don't, I don't get that. You know, my grandmother used to give me Underberg when I used to go on um, the ferry from England to France. Yes. And it was to settle the stomach. And it tasted fantastic. To this day, that's still one of my favorites to drink. It's not an Italian one, but I still love it to death. Fernet Branca, I need to be full to really, really love that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, I, I'm not a big Fernet Branca fan, but I, I, recently I've had it in, in cocktails and that I, I thought have really shown the possibilities of Fernet Branca. Like at, at Amoria Margo, they have a cocktail yep. with Fernet Branca that just blew my mind. And I didn't know I could like it so much. Well, again, um, uh, the Fernet's such a dry flavor. You know, when you mix it with other things and it adds that magic. So that's great. That's great. All right, we're going to come back after just a short break on In the Drink here on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. You're listening to Kursk by Controller on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. Hi, I'm Steve Jenkins from Fairway Markets. You know, there's no more telling aspect, no more revealing virtue of a group of people having evolved in a lovely way than how they feed themselves, how they entertain, how they put food on the table, what they put on the table. Heritage Radio Network provides the clearest evidence that there's hope for us yet. Heritage Radio is like Fairway Market in that we both care deeply about what you're having for dinner tonight. Heritage Radio Network is not just about food, Every time I tune in, I learn something about things other than food, too. Architecture, design, stuff like that. But from where I stand, I still say, if you can't eat it, what's the point? For more information, please visit fairwaymarket.com. Hey, 
And we're back here on In the Drink on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. I'm Joe Campanelli, and we are here with Simon Ford, international famous mixologist and bartender and uh, owner of the 86. Uh, fantastic spirits. Uh, we, just before the break, we took uh, a little taste of the rum, and uh, I'm staring at a bottle of the gin, and I'm, I'm dying to have a taste of this, especially considering Simon's experience with uh, relaunching Plymouth Gin and uh, being instrumental in, in getting people to to taste and try and, and appreciate gin at a time when it wasn't uh, it wasn't the the thing. Now now I feel like not only does everyone have a, a gin behind the bar, but if you don't have several gins, if you don't have a London Dry style and you don't have uh, a local gin made in Brooklyn and you don't have uh, you know, maybe a strong gin, then, uh, then you're probably not doing the right thing. I, um, I think gin's true place in, um, the spirit world is, is the ultimate spirit cocktail mixer. You know, if you think about cognac, it's like you put it in a snifter or you think about tequila, you have it in a shot or vodka served chilled with, uh, you know, caviar, but gin, it's for cocktails, and it always has been. It's got all those spices and herbs and flavors from all over the world. And when you shake them in a drink or when you stir them in a martini, they all come to life, and they take on a new meaning than when you just drink them on its own. And I think that's why when people say to me, I don't like gin, I think that's like saying I don't like sauce because there's so many different gins and so many different flavors. You know, you compare something like um, what Alan Katz is doing at uh, New York Distilling Company. He's used some incredible flavors and has gone to these incredible lengths to create profiles that are unique. And he's doing lots of little experimentation with old Tom-style gins, and he's doing experimentation right now with um, old Geneva styles working with Dave Wondridge. And it's fantastic. There's four gins coming out of one distillery that are all completely uniquely different. And so as a bartender, your job is to really take that gin and work with it to see what flavors complement it the best. Yeah, I, you know, we had uh, Alan on the show, and I think he's doing really great work out there. And one of the things that I, I love about uh, about his gins is that gin in, in New York has, has a great story. And he's telling the story of gin in New, in New York from uh, using some of the history and making those very old styles and then starting a new chapter. I love it. I think no one's, no one's better qualified. I've known Alan for years. And in fact, when, we were, when he was developing the um, recipes for Parker's, uh, Dorothy Parker gin and for um, the uh, old, uh, he's doing the Navy Strength, mm-hmm. Commodore Perry's Navy Commodore Strength. Perry, yeah, yeah we, we, I went up to the distillery every third week with him and we made about three or four batches and the process that he took to make those gins took two three years to get it right to actually perfect those recipes and that's how much effort he put into making those really really good gins i'm, I'm so impressed that's fantastic so what is the story of uh of your gin of ford's gin so um i wanted a gin that went back to the roots of a really strong juniper flavor this gin's actually got 50 percent juniper but over the years i'd heard so many people say i don't like juniper i don't like juniper so i wanted to create a botanical flavor profile that really complemented juniper and i did that through lots of citrus there's grapefruit there's orange there's lemon in there i did it through sweet spices so i used angelica and cassia bark and cassia bark's a bit like cinnamon but without the um heat and then because there was nothing to dry it, we went to look at florals. And so we used jasmine flower to provide the dryness. And so the idea was to create this sort of botanical profile that really complemented juniper so that when it's mixed in cocktails, juniper could still be the star, but there's all those sort of complexities 
to support it. I've got to taste it. Hmm. I've already started. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and another thing we did that I thought was quite um, powerful with this is once we developed the balanced recipe, we um, started playing with oil content. So we ramped up the amount of botanicals we would put in the still. And... And then we'd actually use steep. So we steep for 15 hours in the end. If you pour a tiny splash of water in your gin, you'll see all the oils come out. And it actually releases lots of the flavor. Again, the interesting thing about gin is you are um, always mixing it in a cocktail. And so the idea is what happens when you mix it. And by adding a splash of water, you can always tell what the dynamic of a gin is going to be in a cocktail. And in this instance, you know, it's at 90 proof when it's in the bottle. You add a splash of water, all of a sudden that jasmine comes to life, the coriander pops. And it sort of takes on a very new meaning than when it's just like neat, strong, 90 proof gin. Yeah, and and that's a really good point because every cocktail has seen water at some point. Uh, Water usually in the form of ice. And so it... That the spirits do get diluted, even if it's a quick stir and then a pour and you're drinking your cocktail neat, it's still getting diluted. So to, to taste it with a little bit of water is something that uh, I wish I had done more often because yeah. that, it really makes you uh, <laughs> understand what it's going to be like in the, in the cocktail. Um, if you were to categorize this in a style of gin... Yeah, I mean, it's de- into- our gin, uh, forged gin is definitely uh, a London style. And it wasn't, it didn't, the journey didn't start out that way. I really wanted something to be as, you know, um, versatile as possible. We wanted a gin that would work with lemon and lime citruses in cocktails. So that's why we worked on the citrus profile. We wanted a gin that would work well in stirred drinks and mixed drinks. Because I find my years of experience has been some gins work well in stirred drinks, some work well in shaken drinks, some work well with lemon, some work well with lime. We wanted, if you only had one gin and you needed to do a whole bunch of stuff with it, what would that gin be in this the idea was to create Forge Gin as the jack of all trades, you know, perhaps master of none, but certainly the jack of all trades when it comes to uh, mixing in gin cocktails. That's, I mean, that is really fantastic. I'm thoroughly enjoying it. And it has a, you know, I think in wine terms, sometimes a little bit too much, but just a really long finish. Uh, the floral is definitely more present on, on the finish. And I'm still tasting it. It's beautiful. It's a beautiful, beautiful gin. Yeah, I'm. I'm really, really proud of it. I have to say, it took. It took a long time actually, because when you, you know, when you cook someone dinner, it takes. A, you you watch their faces and you go, and you personally go, I could have done a better job. I could have, you know, like you're thinking, I, I know I left the potatoes out for 20 minutes too long and it got too cold, and you know all of the faults. But everyone around the dinner table is really enjoying it. Well, that was this making this gin for me. I, kept looking at everyone's faces seeing if they enjoyed it but now it's been out for a couple of months i've like watched people really enjoy it we just got a really amazing review from paul picolt who's someone i really respect when it comes to spirits tastings he said it was the best gin he tried in two years best new gin so that was a great accolade so now i'm starting to talk about my own gin with more confidence that's (laughs) impressive there's been a lot of new gins out in the last two years let's move on uh i'm hesitant to to say this but uh there's a, a vodka that's staring at me and uh what made you want to to do a vodka nothing <laughs> it the vodka came by accident to us we were trying to make a rye you know in our conversations with bartenders they said to us um you know we said what do you need and they said we need a rye whiskey of consistent supply you know written house is amazing but it's always running out and so we thought okay let's go and look for um a good consistent 
rye. And we started by doing, similar to a few of our other friends in the industry, by looking to Canada, bringing back some that's already been aged, sticking it in oak casks in the U.S. that have been charred, giving it that extra body that it needs to be sort of more like an American rye as opposed to a Canadian rye. And um, we made a really bad rye whiskey. And um, in the process, these guys were making... um, these guys were making vodkas and they were really, really interesting in flavor profile. And I was like, I don't want to do vodka. And my partner's like, let's do vodka. And I was like, I don't want to do vodka. And I tried it and I was like, this is really good. I'll put it to the test. And I took it to, I think about 12 bartenders that day. And they went, this is really good. And it was one guy in particular that really inspired us to do it. It was Marco Karakosovich from Shah uh, Bay Distillers in California in Ukiah. And he just said, you guys would be stupid not to bring out this vodka. So we did. But the thing is, if we were going to bring out a vodka, I wanted to add some humor. If you see the label, it's uh, filled with lots of uh, sort of fun pokes <laughs> at the vodka industry. It says distilled many, many times. And it, or it says made with really, really clean water. And it says certified, clear, odorless and tasteless. You know, just all of these... I even wrote the words another vodka on there or add anything. You know, I was, I was very much, if we're going to bring out a vodka, it needs some humor. And the only reason I feel that we have the credentials to make fun of the vodka category with the label is because the vodka actually tastes really good. And it's funny, we've just had rum, we've just had gin, and you're about to try it after that. I just think there's so much body and character and flavor in this vodka that it can stand up to uh, taste being tasted after big spirits. And... Um, but I'm totally, uh, I was totally against doing a vodka. And so we've ended up with one. And it's probably my favorite of our labels. It's beautiful. The designer did an amazing job with that. It, it is really beautiful. And I'm still amazed by how easy the one liter bottle is to pour. It's just like, <laughs> oh, this is a satisfying pour. I like doing this. It's crazy. If, if ever other brands had listened to bartenders, they would have ended up with spirits that taste like this. And they would have ended up with bottles that look like that. Even our labels sort of, carry the attitude that i think a bartender has hence the humor on the vodka and so uh, it's, it definitely smells like a weedier you picked it up right away yeah, it's wheat it's white winter wheat it's very soft soft wheat flavors i mean it i, I get that sort of chocolate cacao coffee bean type thing going on here almost like a uh, like a good rustic bread yeah totally uh, the weird thing about um vodka and it, it, it and it's been pointed out by a few people is when you, um, when you um, have a vodka, it's like the tofu of the cocktail world. You know, it's like idea is, doesn't really add much, but it helps other flavors. You know, you put some bitters into some whiskey. <clears throat> you put some bitters into some whiskey. You are, are essentially seasoning that whiskey, but you put bitters into vodka. All of a sudden, those bitters become the star for the first time, and the vodka has created a vehicle for those bitters to actually be the star and if you look at vodka that way you'll actually start to enjoy it as opposed to thinking of it as something that's going to be as exciting as a gin or rum or a whiskey because it never will be it's vodka you know and vodka goes well with caviar zakuski you know like salmon it cuts the fat in food it serves a good purpose a little bit like wine does sometimes so in my i think i hated uh, vodka because there were 300 of them on the bar when I first came to the United States but if you have a bar and you have 4 or 5 vodkas that's good you know have 20 gins you know have 50 whiskeys you know and have 4 or 5 vodkas I, you know I, I totally agree with that because yeah, you taste one gin to the next one and there's such a huge difference so much complexity and there's a lot of thought into the different flavors and vodkas tend to be uh, you know much more much more neutral um, and I always am concerned about putting something that is so clearly 
driven the price is driven by the marketing and and the bottle uh but this is this is a vodka that is absolutely drinkable it's really really tasty it's one that i i would be very happy to put on my thank you bar. yeah yeah i i was worried about bringing it in i have to be honest <laughs> <laughs> yeah i think it's like like no no sommelier is is super stoked to sell a pinot grigio and i don't think any bartender wants to like stock a bunch of, of vodkas i think it's the same kind of idea that's a great way to put it yeah. uh but but at the end of the day we're here to make people happy and if we could do that while providing something that actually has quality and, and integrity then uh, i think that's a noble cause and but i think that one's really excellent do you have time to try tequila before uh, the end of the show because this will uh this will blow your mind okay let's take i think we have just a, a minute left to try the tequila so all I'm, right i'm ready for my mind to be blown because <laughs> <laughs> this is really a full-on agave bomb it's every step was taken to make it taste wow to taste like as much cooked agave as possible winter fermentation for 10 days uh, no oxygenation and again think about it in the cocktail it's actually a 43% ABV so 86 proof so we've bumped that up and it's made by a family called the Vivancos who've been making uh, growing agave since 1920s so they really know their agriculture that is that is like burst out of the <laughs> glass agave I mean that's the subtle agave flavor that you get in a lot of other premium uh, tequila that's just amplified I said I said I, I tried to explain how it tastes the other day and I just said wow. imagine a cooked agave being smashed into your face because it's kind of like that's, that's fantastic i can't believe how good this turned out it literally arrived in the country about three or four days and i it's blown my mind i'm glad to share it actually Thank you. you're probably one of the first Cheers. people to try it simon Cheers. tequila cabeza one of the best tequilas i've had in a long time pure agave um well you know i have a lot more that i want to ask you about so maybe we can have you back on the show uh, I, i'm just excited to, to try all of these but uh I feel like you're such a wealth of knowledge and information that I would love to have you back. Would you I come love back? it. So Just make cocktails and have a good time. I'm down. All right. I live down the street, so perfect. Oh, fantastic. And uh, thank you all at home for, for listening to In the Drink on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. Try tequila cabeza. Wow. <laughs> Thanks for listening to this program on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. You can find all of our archived programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Heritage underscore Radio. You can email us questions at any time at info at HeritageRadioNetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening.